Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark, editor of the magazine with your weekly serving of politics. It's always been a bit of a grey area just how much select committees can kind of compel witnesses to come to their panels and hearings and so on and it's, it's turning out that, that some people are really pushing that to the line. And culture. The idea of picking one book, one novel out of all the ones published in English in the world and crowning it the best is um, invidious to say the least. And later in the programme I'll be speaking to the left-wing journalist, campaigner and Europhile podcaster Zoe Williams who's written in this month's prospect about how she thinks the left can walk the country on a road back to remain. If Jeremy Corbyn got into number 10, could he really do a better job on Brexit than the current lot? I don't think Jeremy Corbyn is himself as brexit as people think he is. But before we get to all of that, I'm here with Alex Dean, who's our politics correspondent, and Samir Rahim, who's our culture editor. Alex, um, we call you our politics correspondent, but effectively at the moment that does mean uh, our Brexit correspondent because there ain't an awful lot more to British politics than that. The summer holidays are now here and yet Brexit keeps trundling on. I imagine that confused and bemused readers and listeners, one thing they'll be wondering about is who's keeping an eye on what the government's doing. That's definitely true, Tom. Government scrutiny has never been so important i think um as kind of uh, the chaos unfolds you really want to think there's there's all sorts of experts keeping an eye on how things are going and one thing that i've been speaking to a lot of kind of experts about recently is select committees these are kind of parliamentary bodies made up of a panel of mps and they're kind of supported by a small staff as well usually with a clerk the idea is basically they publish reports and kind of interrogate what the government's doing and it's never been so important as in the brexit era Maybe never been so difficult as when the government doesn't know what it's doing itself. That's right, I think. Um, So I think they have a responsibility, really, to fill the information vacuum uh, where the government won't. Um, But certainly it's a tricky time for them. Um, They're kind of overworked, um, understaffed. It's incredibly difficult. We've seen, even over uh, kind of recent months... Um, select committee powers there's been a sort of bit of a problem around that it's always been a bit of a grey area just how just how much select committees can kind of compel witnesses to come to their panels and hearings mm. and so on um, and it's it's turning out that, that some people are really pushing that to the line and sort of uh, the, the greyness of the area is, is becoming quite a problem. And um, Dominic Cummings and Aaron Banks have, have kind of said they won't turn up and, and can select committees actually force them to come if they don't want to. It's not it's not like America, is it, where, where their, their uh, Senate committees can legally compel people to 
uh, to attend. So it's a little bit of an emperor's new clothes scenario where uh, when people realise that other people aren't going and they're not being called up on it and there's nothing select committees can do to force them to go, um, I think other people maybe get similar ideas and you end up in a really kind of dodgy situation. Let's imagine, Alex, though, that you had this perfect scrutiny um, uh, process that might have been dreamed up on a kind of um, Lib Dem youth camp, then like, what what really would change if the government doesn't know what it thinks? However hard you push the question, however much you might compel people to come and answer to the High Court of Parliament, if they don't know their own mind, they're just going to haze their way through it, aren't they? I can see your point, Tom, but actually I think there are some examples kind of over recent months where select committees have held politicians uh, to account quite effectively and it's had quite a good concrete effect um i guess the, the classic of the genre for me was david davis in front of the brexit select committee um there'd been some suggestion when he was still brexit secretary that um the government had undertaken dozens of meticulous detailed impact assessments on different sectors of the economy uh, ranging from financial services to the aerospace industry um and it turned out that they hadn't Huge government embarrassment. Um, and I don't think that would have happened without Hilary Benn, who's the chair of the Brexit Select Committee, kind of grilling Davis again and again. Uh, and I do advise our listeners to watch um, if they want kind of an excru- <laughs> excruciating, uh, but I think it's an important moment of, of history, really. Um, one area that does get close scrutiny um, for now, getting on for 50 years, Samir, is the quality of the English novel, because um, the Booker Prize is coming of age, right? That's true. And um, this is sweaty palm times for novelists, because uh, at the time of recording, it's a week until the Man Booker long list is released, 13 books. Um, not actually the English novel quite, it's the novel in English. So they can come from any country in the world now, including America uh, and the Commonwealth, of course, as it has been for 50 years. Um, It's still one of the world's most important book prizes. Um, It has enormous reach and it has enormous range. It can make um, an author who's been struggling for years into a a superstar, give them financial security. And it always gives them that kudos and they can have a Man Booker Prize winner printed on the front cover. But I always find that the long list whenever it's announced, is, although it has a lot less fanfare than when the winner actually gets the award, is the most interesting part of the whole process. Because we all know, I mean, the idea of picking one book, one novel, out of all the ones published in English in the world, and crowning it the best, is um, invidious to say the least. And uh, also just doesn't really go with the spirit of what literature is about, you know, the subjective opinions and the arguments. But the idea that the five qualified judges will have read the 150 or so books that have been submitted to them and they will lay out a sort of smorgasbord of culture for you. There's 13 books there. You might like some, you might not like others, um, but here's the selection of what we think are the most important ones. So I find the long list actually more exciting uh, than the winner. So, So the long list is put together, is it, by uh, the judges on the basis of what submissions from editors what does that first yeah so stage? publishers submit books uh, so it gets into a bit of a sort of confusion sometimes because people don't know whether they have been submitted by their publisher or not i think it publishers are allowed to submit two novels if you've already won um then you automatically get shortlisted uh, sorry you automatically get submitted i should say uh the judges can then also um call in books so they uh, might not see 
uh, a book which they think is, is deserving for them to, to have a look at. So the 150 that they read is already culled from obviously a much larger number. And how many are on the long list in a normal year? Uh, it's called a man book a dozen, so it's 13. Okay. And then, um, and then it's whittled down um, after then to the shortlist. And how many of those do you read? <laughs> um, I, go, I try to read all of them. And what's interesting is that you can see that people buy all of them as well. If you go on Amazon and you look at the, uh, if you click on one of them, the, the algorithm that says this person bought this as well often comes up with um, <laughs> all the other ones on the shortlist. Uh, and people, uh, people do trust it. People do think of it as a, a marker of quality, which is why there's so many discussions and debates over who wins it. You know, are enough women winning it? Are enough ethnic minorities winning it? Should we have let in Americans who weren't in there uh, three or four years ago, but now are and seem to be... Um, uh, the influx of quality um, it makes means that they're running away with the prize. Um, and is it seen as um, in a different league from other? You know, there's other prizes around, aren't there? Like, you know, the, is it the Bailey's Prize, the women's fiction one? And yeah. A prizes in America. Is it seen as as world class, as they call it in the World Cup? Well, what it was, it was regarded in America as the books that have been. Uh, published in the English-speaking world outside the US. So books that you may, they may not have heard of or may not have um, looked at. That was really one of its main purposes. Um, of course, now that Americans are in there and are allowed to be submitted, that means that slight sense of um, uniqueness about the prize has gone uh, away. What it does mean, though, is that for readers, who I don't really suppose care whether their books are written by Americans or written by Australians or written by... Um, Jamaicans or English people um, it gives them a wider variety of um, possible winners more competition which is why of course authors uh, particularly English authors who therefore have less chance of being selected and ultimately getting the prize are so annoyed by that. You were called to Buckingham Palace no less recently weren't you to uh, look meet some former Booker Prize winners um, what's your reflections on people who've really been made by it, people who've really deserved to win and maybe some that haven't? Um, well, Hilary Mantel is a very good example. She was um, a novelist who wrote for many years and was uh, you know, a critic's favourite. I don't suppose she sold uh, very many copies. Um, but when she came along with Wolf Hall, it was the right author at the right time um, and it fitted the moment. Um, when she started writing historical fiction in the early 1990s, it was rather looked down on. But by the late 2010s, it, it, it was much more fashionable. Um, I, I would say also that um, when I was at, at the palace, not to name drop too much, but I did. <laughs> it was quite funny seeing lots of different winners uh, all around. I was queuing up with uh, Anita Desai and Kieran Desai, a mother and daughter winning uh, pair. Um, and it was quite nice chatting to them. Um, they both produced excellent novels, actually. And there was also V.S. Naipaul there, um, who is... He must uh, be getting on a bit now. He's, he, yes, born in 1932, I think, and he won for Inner Free State in 1971, which is one of his least well-known books, in fact. Um, it's it's good, but I wouldn't say it's in my top five Naipauls. Um, so often writers can win for books which they don't, um, are not necessarily their uh, uh, best-known ones. Um, Julian Barnes, uh, for example, is a recent example of that, where uh, Flaubert's Parrot um, or History of the World in Ten and a Half Chapters would seem to be um, 
more likely winners, but they never did win. Um, sense of an ending did, though. Right. Thanks for that, Samir. Uh, and now we go over to our main event and to a conversation I had earlier about Corbyn, Brexit and the future of British politics. So we're delighted to be joined by Zoe Williams, who's the presenter of Another Europe is Possible podcast and has also written a piece for us on the left road to remain, where she argues against, it has to be said, very many others, that Jeremy Corbyn or his like-minded successor could be Britain's last best hope of seeing off what she regards as the Brexit madness. Hello, Zoe. Hello. Um, On the anti-Brexit demos, they scream, where's Jeremy Corbyn? So... How do you think he could turn out to be a salvation after all? Well, I've got, I've got, um, I've got a very foot-rounded answer to that. Firstly, the, the the demos and the where's Jeremy Corbyn, it was it was kind of Lib Dem mischief, and I appreciate Lib Dem mischief. You know, I, I no, nobody likes mischief of any sort more than I do, but it, they they can see that he's in a difficult position with that. He cannot go on a march against Brexit when he's when his position is strategic ambiguity. It's just not on um so i don't resent or criticize even his absence from the kind of the the remain formulation as it is at the moment but nor do i accept that he's implacably anti-europe he was never as benite as he's been made out to be you know we, we kind of talk about it as though it's this as though it's been in incredibly financialized this is the eu and it's been taken over by financial institutions and therefore any kind of left-wing kind of hard left candidate would be against it on principle but I think Corbyn recognizes that it was British influence that actually pushed that side of the EU that was always more interested in the economic side of it that was always more interested in the kind of freedom of capital flow that was always more interested in making it into a way to to kind of smooth the passage of business than a way to embed peace and reconciliation and it would frankly be really uncomradely of us to say to kind of make that mess and be as instrumental as we were in that mess and then walk away and try and be Cuba. So I don't think I don't think Jeremy Corbyn is himself as Brexity as people think he is. I think when he said he was seven point five percent remain, he actually meant it. That's the strange thing about him. Seven and a half out of ten. Seven no. and a half, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's not seven point five percent. What am I talking about? Yeah, seventy five percent. Seven out, seven point five out. Of 10. So that might just have been a straight. Okay, but say that's where he is. Mm. I mean, you know, there are these initiatives kicking around about give us a second referendum or whatever, and that's a easy way out. It's a way the Labour left's used in the past to say, well, you know, it was a fairly close vote. Things don't seem to be going too well. Some people think this. Some people think that. Let's let's have another referendum. Why is he not rushing to embrace that? I think the the term second referendum is considered really really toxic in the, the kind of Labour leadership. Firstly, because it there is there is th- this idea is really hardened that there's this kind of really hardcore working class angry Northern vote that would see anything that 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 looks at any kind of revision of opinion or revision of the situation as a betrayal of their democratic rights and i can see the, the, i can see how the argument hardened because it was everybody agrees on some kind of you know um, d- d- at the level of uh, uh, gut level that that vote the kind of leave vote was in part powered by a kind of socking it to the establishment and yeah. if you sock it to the establishment and then the establishment comes back to you and says, give us a better answer, then that's the establishment just trampling over your socking it to them. 
And I can really see that. And I can really see that there would be that sense of betrayal. And, and so where does that and take so, you then? Well, so that, that, what that's done is calcify the Labour position in this kind of, we've, we can bank the Remain votes anyway, and we, and we can only re retake those northern heartlands if we respect the referendum result. And, they, and, that, and that's been their kind of fixed position. What I don't think is... That's, a, that's an electoral realities position, right? That's not a moral position. That's not a practical position. That's not a macroeconomic position. That's not a vision for the future. That is how do we get those votes? And I do think, which I know many people disagree with me, some of whom I'm married to, um, that it is it does have a radical vision, which it, and it's a radical generative vision for the future of the country. So... It, I find it not just dispiriting, but actually uncharacteristic and untrue to itself that they're making this quite significant call on the, on the second referendum idea on the basis of which, which marginal constituencies they could scoop up 2,000 votes here or there. And, and, and we will get onto the substance of your, your piece in, in a moment about um, how this could all work, but we just need to clear these mechanics out of the way. Mm. I mean... There, there are in momentum and elsewhere. There is talk of like um, getting this stuff to conference and changing Labour policy so that it would be in favour as the um, Brexit um, shambles unfolds of giving the people another say. Um, Jeremy Corbyn and his friends in the Labour Party have always been in the campaign for Labour Party democracy, and they've. Um, are, are they going to play this with a straight bat and let the Labour Party membership as a whole decide whether it wants to uh, reopen this question? It would think? be, I mean, can you imagine? It would be a very difficult, it would be very difficult for them to do that, to go to get as far as conference and then change their Brexit policy, but it would be even more difficult for them not to. So I think if they, if it got to the point where you had 200 CLPs bringing motions, where you had a momentum petition that had actually that, that had actually solidified into a motion where you had a significant number of unions, and I think the unions are really key, um, all saying, you know, break somehow. However you however you hit the brakes, hit the brakes somehow. It would be incredibly difficult for the leadership to say, no, we fight on, we fight to win, with an agenda that none of its members agreed with. It would be really, really difficult. Mm, okay, so you think there might still, despite the negative um, words so far from Corbyn about a second referendum, it might move. And then why don't you get into this bigger question of um, like how it is that you think a uh, left-wing Labour government could actually address the causes, as it were, of the, of the Leave vote? Well, I mean, I think the Leave vote, if it meant anything, and there's a, there's a lot of... There's a lot of deliberate misinterpretation of the of the Leave vote. You know, it has been painted as a kind of roar of the working classes against the metropolitan elite. It's the, this, this is silly. You know, the, the the numbers are roughly proportional in every class. The, uh, roughly similar numbers of middle class wealthy people voted Leave as working class people. The, you know, there's a, there's a kind of uh, there's a little bit of distortion because of the regional split. But you know, actually, when you if you want to divide people into ABC one a b ones and cdes that's it was 35 percent of all of them mm. so you know i really don't see the leave vote on mass as a kind of 
as as a working class movement against an elitist project. But there was an element, certainly, which was heavily leveraged by the anti-immigration rhetoric of people just saying enough already, enough austerity, enough low wages, enough high rents, enough changes that only seem to make our lives worse, enough of being told that unfortunately the machine says no and there's nothing you can do to politically mobilise around these things that are ruining your life. Enough and of I you think lot. Enough of you lot, yeah. And I think Corbyn, in order to make sense of any kind of Remain programme, would have to deal with that sense of a kind of a faceless bureaucracy just eroding your living conditions without you having any democratic levers to or any say in it and i think that's the that's the kind of core charge against the eu which we can all agree with and understand that it's it didn't have very much provision in the end for the kind of democratic accountability of european citizens so it had really good provision for making for making improvements to one's life mm. but very bad provision for responding to you know a downturn you can say if you say well it got captured by financial stroke business stroke large corporate interests and there was nothing we could do and it rode roughshod over us especially if we were greek let's walk away from it. You're basically saying it was captured for quite a short time, for probably 30 years. Well, I mean, it's only been around. <laughs> hasn't been around that long. But probably, f let's say, 20 years, it was captured by a kind a, a mindset which, which privileged the strong over the weak and privileged Germany over Greece and privileged kind of d d made decisions which weren't pro-social at their core. If you say, okay, well, that's what happened. Let's walk away from it. You're basically saying those institutions have no innate value. They just are what they are according to who's in charge of them. Now, I don't agree with that. You know, it's like I think I think our I think our government is a neoliberal conspiracy, but I don't want to get rid of government. Mm. I think that mm. there have been there have been kind of projects and visions in politics running up to the financial crash and then intensified by the financial crash, which have been against the interests of whichever voting public you're talking about but the answer is not to get rid of the institutions the answer is to strengthen the institutions and strengthen the channels between the institutions and the people they're supposed to serve um i think you've written before in in, in the guardian that your um father was an anarchist and your grandfather was a communist <laughs> <laughs> um I'm, I'm i'm just wondering like when did you first become aware that you were left wing and that you saw europe oh. as part of that that's <laughs> really interesting. I, well i didn't in, in two things i mean no my father was an anarchist just to annoy my mother he, he was apolitical really he's very bored by the whole by everything um and he worked in the prison service and and, and you know presided over the era of privatization and never lifted a finger to say anything about it even as the service was completely eroded <laughs> before his very eyes um but it wasn't i mean you know you know you grew up in the you grew up in the 80s right mm. i mean mm. it, you, if you didn't in the 80s under margaret thatcher get a fundamental sense of the purpose of solidarity then you just weren't concentrating it was i mean it was a really stark divided time when a huge amount of antisocial developments were deliberately d brought about by the conservative party it's very difficult to cut to mature politically without having that as the, your kind of foundational 
observation. Um, so I would say that about being left wing. The, the kind of alliance of left wingness and labour, I mean, of left wingness in Europe, I think is interesting because I was, ne I would never would have said I was particularly European. Mm. I never would have said it was a particularly my sensibility. And actually, I think we are quite on the British left. We are quite parochial, and we often don't notice what is going on in Europe that's very similar to what we're doing, and we don't make alliances very easily in a way that you know. Podemos would make with Syriza it would take us ages to notice that that was even happening but I think and I think kind of probably the generation after me in on the left is much better at it just because they're better at everything that, that's kind of well, yeah okay better at everything full stop but I mean I do think millennials are much better at kind of cross-border I think they're just more connected. I mean, you can blame the internet, but I think they're just more aware and alert and connected to other movements. I think the other thing, the other massive piece of this picture that's missing is that we are in a very rare grip of the kind of rise of the far right. You mm. know, it's really stark. It's really hard to ignore the idea that we're headed somewhere really dangerous. Just not just Trump and Putin, but all these countries destabilize so much, forgetting so easily what they're what they're signed up to, what civil how civilization works, how it was built. You know, the, the five what five star have been saying in Italy about immigration is just stunning. And, and but my my husband always says that racism in politics is like steroids in sport. One side starts doing it. And then the other side copies them. And then for a while, everybody looks really, really strong. And then everybody's eyeballs start popping out. Lots of um, people, lots of sort of centrists think that, like, the Corbyn project is sectarian and insular and not interested in any outside influences, including... Including, potentially on Brexit. Including potentially on Brexit. I mean, did, you look, I have a massive... I have a real problem. If the Labour Party can't be shifted on this... I do think it will be like a rerun of Blair. I think it will be exactly the same logic that Blair took, which is, I've already got those votes in the bank. What I need to get is, those, is these votes. So, you know, in his conception, he already had the left votes in the bank and what he needed was the centre votes. Yeah. In Corbyn's conception, he's already got the Remain votes in the bank and what he needs is the Leave votes. But it's exactly the same way of looking at it. It's, it's, it's very kind of leader-driven, it's five guys in a room making a decision. You know, I mean, I've, I've been absolutely appalled by the way they'll just come back with this soft nationalist offer. Oh, freedom of movement has to end. And you're like, hang on, a, hang on a second. We're Labour. We're, we're, we're the Labour Party. We, we, don't, we, we don't give things up like that. There are centrist accusations of the Corbyn leadership, which I would agree with if it turns out that they, that they transpire, you know, if it turns out that they're completely inflexible and they'll give up freedom of movement at the drop of a hat, then I will agree with the critique. But I would make a critique of the centrists as well, which is that it's, this really, it's really naked how they have used Remain as a way to attack Corbyn mm. consistently to the extent that it, look, it just looks like a stalking horse. It looks like they're trying to kind of nudge onto the Remainy territory, the left Remain territory, in order to take it for an anti-Corbyn project. And that, and I think I probably do share this with most Corbyn supporters, mm. ultimately I would support Jeremy Corbyn against Peter Mandelson before I would support Remain against Leave. Because I think I just think it's dishonourable. I mean, you spend quite a lot of time at meeting seminars, meeting people who are involved. Um, what do you make of the um, 
caricature or some would say, you know, the description of Labour as becoming rather cult-like and um, oh. Jeremy this and Jeremy that and, 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 and anyone who's, I don't know, making yeah, a complaint yeah, yeah. against anti-Semitism or whatever it is, is, is clearly only doing it to grind an axe. It's, it, I mean, the, the, the poli- our politics are absolutely horrible at the moment is the first point I'd make. It's the first time I've ever agreed with Nicholas Soames, but it's, it, it's horrible to watch and horrible to get involved with. Now, there is, so the anti-Semitism thing was an absolute case in point. There were a lot of people just around and about who said this is just an obvious it's obvious Jeremy Corbyn believes in universal human rights it's ob- that's obvious this is just a, a, a slur and the people who did see anti-semitism a problem of anti-semitism maybe if not in any kind of one individual but just in the a crude language of the old left really had to fight to get themselves heard because we've divided down such ridiculous battle lines where everything is taken as a signal of something else. So mm. if, if one person says, it, you know, if one person even mentions anti-Semitism, they're raising hackles on somebody else who's thinking that they're part of a, a, a mainstream media conspiracy against Corbyn. And it, it makes it very difficult for people to listen to each other in a comradely way. So, yeah, I completely take that. I completely take the fact that there, 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 is a, there is a massive problem with people with kind of, it's not a dog whistle exactly, but there are kind of high-pitched noises that only some people can hear where they hear a criticism and all they can hear in it is a, is a kind of PLP plot to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn. And let's just zoom back now and just um, close by talking just a little bit more about the essay so like jeremy corbyn may have like demanded article 50 as the sun was rising on june yeah. the 24th but let's let's give him the benefit of the doubt as, as you say the mainstream media often doesn't and let's imagine that he listens to this new democracy in the labor party and let's further imagine that um the the way that plays out is as you'd like to see that there's a call for a new referendum and like maybe the government collapses because there's no majority for its brexit policy and then we're into um a corbyn government the referendum he gets this remain vote so we're deliberately walking a long way down yeah. the path are, with you we are walking a long if way down all of path. that happens <laughs> then yeah. um like what do you think he does um in government to assuage the causes of the leave vote and then maybe to try and do something about what you don't like about the european project in terms of it being technocratic and neoliberal or whatever the key point about a kind of corbyn government would be living standards right it would be but the other the flip side of it of course is the erosion of wages and conditions and that's been you've written a book about wages i mean we all know that wages have stagnated for years and we all know what that does to to kind of civic society and to politics and i think he actually can't do the work he needs to do on wages without europe because it does need you know zero hours contracts need need sorting um, hyper surveillance, surveillance culture at work needs sorting, complete erosion of workplace rights, total flexibility for the employer and total neo-slavery for the worker. These things need sorting and they cannot be sorted by a national government when the corporations that are deploying them are international. You know, we cannot solve the problem of an Amazon workhouse, workhouse <laughs> warehouse. Um, we cannot solve the problem of an a- Amazon warehouse if they can just go to Poland, as they did when Germany, German unions tried to take them on in 2015. We cannot solve the problem of Sports Direct, even though it's a British company, because, of course, they can just leave. And finally, finally, now you do this podcast talking to people from all over Europe. Do mm. you think, you know, 
Britain walks out and half comes back um, with a, a different kind of regime in charge. Are the rest of Europe going to be interested at all? And do you think they might like be open minded to these kind of reforms? Oh yeah, I mean, I think they. I think there's a lot of sympathy for us. This um, Nicola Milanese, who I mentioned in the piece, he's, he's the author of a wonderful book actually called Citizens of Nowhere. Um, he talks about he he said you know you guys don't understand how impatient they're getting with you. Um, they are that you think that you're insulated against a no deal scenario because they just wouldn't let it happen, but they actually would let it happen because it would be you'd be the losers. <laughs> so I think you've got to see this in that context. You they they they're not going to they're not going to save us from ourselves, and they're not. And if we go back and say okay we'll join we'll rejoin, but you need to give us more concessions, they're not going to have that. But I think they're in flux as well, right? They're fighting their own hard right. They're fighting their own battles. They're, they're, they, they can see the, how destructive it would be if we left. And they can see how... Dis- and the, the European left is absolutely awestruck by Jeremy Corbyn. They can't believe how well he's done. So th- there is real admiration and appetite for cooperation from them too we would have to go with we would have to go in a kind of we'd have to go in the spirit of conciliation and peace as we did when we joined in the first place <laughs> you know we would not be able to go and swing our swords about and and say what more we wanted in order to stay we'd have to go in in a just a more human spirit but i think with a change of government we'd be capable of doing that Right, that's just about all for this week. I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Jay Elwes. And in our cover package for this month, as well as Zoe's fabulous piece, we're asking Nick Clegg how Brexit could be stopped. And we're also asking a whole load of experts, including Wolfgang Munchau, Caroline Lucas and Will Hutton, about the good, the bad and the unexpected things that could ensue if Brexit were stopped after all. Buy a copy and find out what the thinkers are thinking. Or if you prefer digital, you you can read Zoe's full essay on our brilliant website at www.prospectmagazine.co.uk and while you're there you might well notice that our subscription rates are very reasonable indeed. Tune in next week to the Prospect Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.